Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're going to do a Byzantine emperor, Manuel II Paleologus. Now, Manuel II came very near the end of the Byzantine Empire. We've done a little bit of Byzantine political theory before. I think it's understudied as it's a whole tradition in the Middle Ages, separate and distinct from the Western tradition, that we don't spend a whole lot of time with. We've done Michael Sellos before, and we've talked a little bit about the laws of Justinian, you know, in large part in relation to how they were interpreted by Italian legal theorists. But today we're going to come back to the Byzantines and we're going to do Manual 2. So, a little bit of Byzantine history. The Byzantine Empire was badly damaged by the Fourth Crusade in 1204, in which the Crusaders deposed the Byzantine Emperor, looted Constantinople, and installed a Catholic Emperor. Despite that, however, Constantinople does not fall to the Ottomans until 1453. So there's a 250-year period after the Fourth Crusade before the ultimate fall of Constantinople to the Ottomans. That's a period of history that's comparable in length to the lifespan of the United States. So the Fourth Crusade is just the beginning of the end in a very, very big, big, long sense. In 1261, so just over half a century later, Michael VIII used a power base around Nicaea in eastern Anatolia to recapture Constantinople from the Latin Crusaders, restoring the Byzantine Empire. In the 1300s, this new Byzantine Empire was torn apart by civil war, first in the 1321 to 1328 period, and then again in 1341 to 1347. Those civil wars allowed the Ottomans, Serbs, and Bulgarians to pilfer a lot of Byzantine territory. By the time Manuel II was born in 1350, so this is about 100 years before the ultimate fall, the empire was reduced mainly to Thrace, a couple of Greek exclaves around the cities of Thessalonica and Larissa, and the Byzantine stronghold of Philadelphia in Asia Minor. From this position, the Byzantine Empire lacked the resources to support its own recovery. If it was to recover, it needed to get help, and it needed to get lucky. Manuel was proclaimed co-emperor with his father in 1373. And by that point, most of Thrace was gone, apart from the area around Constantinople. The Ottomans set up their capital in Adrianople, in what had been one of the core Byzantine cities in Thrace. The exclaves around Thessalonica and Larissa remained intact, but for how long? Manuel's brother, Andronikos IV, was none too pleased about being passed over by Manuel's dad, and he immediately set about trying to depose Manuel and his father, John V. In the 1380s, John V cut a deal with his son Andronikos to exclude Manuel from the secession. He charged Manuel with governing Thessalonica. But here is one of the instances in which Manuel gets lucky. 
Andronikos dies in 1385, and that restores Manuel as a claimant. Manuel then loses Thessalonica to the Ottomans in 1387, but he survives this defeat, and his father punishes him with exile to the island of Lemnos. He spends two years there. Then in 1390, there's a new revolt by Andronikos' son, John VII. Manuel personally defeats that revolt. But what's his reward? His father sends him as a hostage to the Ottoman court, where he's forced by Sultan Bayezid I to participate in the Ottoman conquest of Philadelphia. Manuel writes that he found it unbearable that he, quote, had to fight along with those and on behalf of those whose every increase in strength lessens our own strength. Immediately after that, though, in 1391, John V dies. Manuel II flees the Ottoman court to secure Constantinople against any new rebellion by John VII. By the time Manuel becomes sole ruler, then, Thessalonica and Philadelphia are both gone. The empire only holds Constantinople, Larissa, some islands in the Aegean Sea, very, very little else. In 1394, so early in Manuel's reign, Bayezid starts a blockade of Constantinople, keeping the city under constant pressure for the next eight years. But despite the growing power of the Ottomans, the the Byzantines managed to hold on under Manuel. Manuel was even able to restore Thessalonica to Byzantine control, and he was able to get some isolated exclaves to recognize his central authority. Manuel's strategy centered around feigning interest in uniting the Orthodox Church with the Catholic Church so as to obtain sympathy from Western Christendom and thereby acquire Western military aid. He was able to get the Hungarian king, Sigismund, to send forces, but those were defeated in 1396. So starting in 1399, Manuel goes on a tour of the West. He goes to Italy, France, and England. He pleads with Charles VI of France and Henry IV of England for aid. But they make lots of promises and end up delivering nothing. Ultimately, Manuel gets out of this through luck. The Ottomans were attacked from the east by Timur, a Turco-Mongolian who established a massive empire based on the territory of Persia. Kind of similar to our discussion of Nizam al-Malk, you have an empire in Persia that has a steppe population that's leading, in this case, Turco-Mongolians, but which functions on a set of Persian infrastructure that's been around for a long, long time. So it's a new iteration of the Persian Empire under Timur. This version of the Persian Empire is not to be messed around with. Timur's Persian Empire is really, really powerful. Unbelievably powerful. The thing is, Bayezid and the Ottomans, they didn't really take much notice. Bayezid makes the mistake of demanding tribute from one of Timur's tributary states. Timur takes this as a personal affront, and he launches an enormous Mongol invasion of Anatolia, with over 140,000 troops, most of which are cavalry, and 32 war elephants. 
Bayezid has to break off the blockade of Constantinople to deal with Timur. And as it turns out, even that is not good enough. Timur attacks the Ottomans at Ankara in 1402, the modern-day capital of Turkey, and there he comprehensively defeats the Ottomans. He captures Bayezid, and Bayezid then dies in captivity the following year, at just 42 years of age. According to the Turks, Timur was very mean to Bayezid and put him in a cage and treated him very badly. According to the Persians, Timur liked you know, Bayezid and felt bad for him and was sad when he died. Once Bayezid dies, it, this kicks off an 11-year Ottoman civil war over the secession, and that buys Manuel a long break from Ottoman trouble. Indeed, one of Bayezid's sons, Suleiman, makes a deal with John VII, returning some territory, including Thessalonica, in exchange for Byzantine support. In this way, Thessalonica is regained, but it's because of John VII negotiating a deal. As, as you may recall, John VII is the usurper who is constantly challenging Manuel and who Manuel is constantly worried about. John decides to rule Thessalonica as emperor of all Thessaly. And Manuel just kind of has to accept that. But here again, Manuel catches a break. In 1408, John VII dies, and Thessalonica goes to one of Manuel, Manuel II's sons. Perhaps ironically, the son that ends up in charge of Thessalonica is also named Andronikos, the same name that John VII's father had. Manuel suffers a stroke in 1422, and he dies in 1425. When he dies, the purple passes to his son, John VIII. I know we have a lot of Johns here. you got John V, who is Manuel II's father. you got John VII, who is a competitor, the usurper. And then John VIII, who is the son of Manuel II, and who Manuel II is very fond of. In one of Manuel II's last acts, he tries to once again interfere in Ottoman internal politics. This time, the new sultan, Murad II, wasn't having it, and Constantinople was once again besieged. But a conveniently timed rebellion from Murad's brother forces him to lift that siege. As Ottoman pressure once again increased, Andronikos, this is the son, not the usurper, gave Thessalonica to the Venetians in 1423, hoping that they would defend it. And in 1424, Manuel and John, mainly John at this point, agreed to pay the Ottomans off in exchange for another period of peace. That period of peace did not last long. The Venetians lost Thessalonica to the Ottomans in 1430. John VIII, however, managed to hold Constantinople until his death in 1448. He tried reuniting the churches, but it angered the population in Constantinople, and it didn't produce much Western aid. Only the Hungarians really tried to help, in large part because they were also worried about Ottoman expansion, as it, and as it would turn out, for good reason. The Ottomans were very much a threat to the Hungarians, too. The Hungarians led the Crusade of Varna in 1443, but the Ottomans defeated them, seizing more territory from the Serbs in the process. However, because the Ottomans were busy beating these other Balkan armies in other places, that bought Constantinople a little more time. 
1448, John VIII died childless, and the purple passed to another son of Manuel's, Constantine XI. He was the final Byzantine emperor who died defending Constantinople in 1453, and who is said to have done a last charge out of the city to try to beat the Ottomans, and who died uh, during that charge. So, that's the historical context. As for the thought, Manual 2 left many writings for us in Greek. A few have been translated into English, including his letters and his funeral oration for his brother, Theodore. He wrote a couple of texts offering advice to his son, John VIII, including precepts on the education of a prince and a set of ethico-political orations. The precepts are the last entry in the Byzantine mirror for princes genre, a genre in which emperors write for their sons or for their successors about how they ought to rule. The advice that was given to John was not private advice. Manuel read a lot of these texts aloud in front of educated people who could criticize them. And he often revised his works in response to feedback. They went through multiple iterations. By giving the advice in public, however, Manuel also helps to clarify that John VIII is his intended successor. Manuel knows all too well that disputes about the secession are the thing that has weakened the Byzantine Empire repeatedly in recent years. So, what advice does Manuel give? Well, he says an excellent ruler has several abilities. The ability to control his own thoughts, the ability to aim at the common interest, the ability to love what is good, and the ability to honor truth. He gives negative examples showing how rulers widely regarded to have been terrible lack these qualities. He often chooses distant examples from antiquity. This helps him avoid controversy. The rulers he criticizes are dead and can't defend themselves. But it's also noteworthy that many of the people that he picks are figures from ancient Athens. And that might be because Athens was itself a city-state with an assortment of overseas territories in the Aegean, but no comprehensive control of Greece. And that's a territorial position that looks a lot like the Byzantine position at this point. The Athenians also defeat a much larger empire coming from Anatolia. You know, they're able to fend off the Persians through forming coalitions with allies and neighbors. And that more or less is Manuel's strategy and what he hopes to do. So, Manuel argues that happiness is false unless it's achieved through virtue, because a person who acquires happiness through some other way will think they're happy, but will find that the other way that they acquired happiness ultimately leads to their destruction. So if you think, oh, I'll, I'll be happy because I'll have a lot of money, well, the greed that will drive you to do that will eventually get in your way. So even if you think you're happy, even if you have some temporary happiness, the fact that the happiness doesn't come from the right kind of cause will eventually do you in. Manuel even argues that force is inferior to virtue, arguing that while the Athenians were grossly inferior to the Persians in wealth and force, their superior virtue enabled them to prevail. He argues that tyrants fail to understand these things, and for that reason tyrants lack legitimacy. 
tyrants can force their subjects to obey them for a while, but the subjects will inevitably start plotting against the tyrants, and eventually tyrants are laid low by those schemes. The emperor, however, will be supported by his subjects if he treats them appropriately, in the right kind of way, in the way emperors are supposed to treat their subjects. The empire is weakened if the emperor behaves inappropriately, or if the subjects refuse to obey. But Manuel insists that these things have to be connected. If the emperor behaves correctly, the subjects will obey. So if the subjects aren't behaving correctly, that implies there's something wrong with the emperor's behavior. The thing is, all these civil wars that have been happening that have weakened the Byzantine Empire belie this a little. What's been going on? Either the emperors have not behaved appropriately, or there are some subjects who will not obey a virtuous emperor, or will only obey a virtuous emperor unwillingly for a period of time while they're being forced by the law. Well, Manuel says, okay, the emperor needs skillet rhetoric to show the subjects that he really is virtuous so that they will recognize the virtue and obey. But even this clearly isn't going to be enough. So how do we make sense of the subjects not obeying emperors who you know, seem virtuous? Well, some subjects are evil. And this is where we move into a big discussion about evil and its causes and where it comes from and how it works. So, Manuel argues that all creatures contain goodness because they are all created by God equally. But created beings are inferior to the one who created them. The fact that humans are created by God estranges them from the goodness of God to some degree, and therefore makes them inferior to the divine. However, because human beings were created directly by God, they are not so far removed from God as to be beyond saving. So, for instance, this argument implies that things created by humans, like, for instance, ChatGPT, are further estranged from God because they are not created directly by God, but by humans, and therefore they will not be able to be saved uh, and will be uh, beyond saving. Human beings, however, because they have a closer relationship to God, can be saved, unlike AI. So, there are three kinds of evil subjects. First, ignorant subjects. They want what's good, but don't know what it is. Manuel gives alcoholics as an example of this type. Second, drones. Drones are parasites who falsely identify happiness with bodily comfort. They're worse than ignorant as they adopt a parasitic way of life, exploiting others to obtain luxuries. Right? Then you've got knaves. Knaves falsely identify happiness with wealth and the possession of large numbers of slaves. They're worse than drones insofar as they are not just parasites, but industrious parasites. They also do not understand the value of things in themselves. They only value people and things instrumentally as a means to obtain wealth. Now, Manuel argues that the knavish rely on fortune and chance to get ahead because they lack virtue. And he warns his son against relying on fate, saying that if you rely on fate, fate is fickle, and stuff that you, you get, you will lose very quickly. He argues that all of these evil men know on some level that they are evil, and that this knowledge makes them hate themselves. If evil men know they are evil, then their ignorance is qualified. They're not totally ignorant. They know that they're evil. So they know that they're ignorant, but they're ignorant. Hmm. 
This allows Manuel to sound both like a Platonist and a Christian. He can suggest both that ignorance is the cause of evil, and he can suggest that evil involves free will, because it involves in some way deciding not to know, or hiding from oneself self the truth. Now, you might expect Manuel to just kind of move on here, but he sort of digs in and starts to take a deeper interest in what's voluntary and what's involuntary, and what are we responsible for and what are we not responsible for. So he argues that certain actions are involuntary and genuinely not our fault. Actions performed in complete ignorance, as opposed to the partial ignorance I've just described, actions that are caused by deception, and actions that are performed under violence or compulsion. Now, Manuel gives the example of a man who follows a tyrant out of fear. Initially, the man follows the tyrant involuntarily out of compulsion. But if the man commits crimes on the tyrant's behalf, Manuel argues that he voluntarily commits those crimes. For this reason, Manuel argues that this is a mixed voluntary action. It appears involuntary at first and is in some sense involuntary at first, but then appears voluntary later. Now, this notion of mixed voluntary is perhaps the most original contribution here. A lot of the general discussion that we've had here so far sounds like other Byzantine or other Christian thinkers that uh, were around that Manuel would have had access to as part of his education. But this mixed voluntary concept is rather distinctive. It's a little bit like the Buddhist parable about the two arrows. You know, in the Buddhist parable about the two arrows, you get hit by the first arrow and you have no control over that. But what about the second arrow? <laughs> but it's not precisely the same because the two arrows parable is often to do with, you know, how do you react to a misfortune and whether you get emotionally upset by the misfortune or how much you let the misfortune upset you or cause you suffering. Whereas this is about what you then go on to do. It's not just about how you feel or how you react. It's about actions that you then take on the basis of what happens first. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong to say that those things are different. Maybe they're more similar than I've suggested. We might dig into that. Anyway, Manuel suggests that pleasure is similar to a tyrant insofar as we are involuntarily compelled to pursue pleasure at first by its deceptive character. But when we ultimately submit to pleasure, Manuel thinks that's voluntary. He argues that if pleasure seems good, it will be still more painful when fortune takes it away. So if you get accustomed to a luxury like coffee, coffee wouldn't have been around in, in Manuel's context, but it pops into my head readily. If you get accustomed to coffee and then you're without it, you suffer more than you enjoyed the coffee. Also, some pleasures are clearly bad even when we are experiencing them. For instance, if you eat until your stomach hurts, right, then you'll suffer more than you enjoyed eating. Now, advisors can help an emperor spot when he's succumbing to pleasure, and for that reason, the emperor should not send away critical advisors. He should listen to people who, out of love and friendship, tell him, hey, you should knock it off. Pleasure tends to promote greed because pleasurable things are expensive. And of course, once you are motivated by greed, that moves you into the territory of knavishness, which is quite bad as far as Manuel is concerned. 
However, pleasure is created by God, and God does not create in vain. So if desire for pleasure is part of the soul, it must serve some purpose. Samuel argues, following Aristotle, that we can have pleasure in moderation. It only becomes evil when we misuse it. So in this way, pleasure is good for those who can handle it with moderation and bad for those who cannot and who are enslaved by it as you might be enslaved by a tyrant. Those who make mistakes should repent, but we should not judge them. They can be redeemed. They can be forgiven. Manuel closes both of the works written for his son with a discussion of humility. The worst kind of evil stems from pride. Manuel argues that moderation and humility go together, as do humility and love. Fear is not a virtue, but fear of punishment can lead people to virtue at early stages. And the fear of God and humility before God leads us to love. In this way, this kind of fear, this anxiety about falling away from God, is the beginning of virtue, even though it's not itself a virtue. If you do good out of love, however, arrogance tends to follow. Whenever you're successful, you tend to get arrogant. And the only protection against arrogance is humility. So if you don't have humility, when you do good out of love, you'll end up with pride. And once you get pride, you end up evil. So humility is the only way that good can be sustained. Without humility, as soon as good shows up, it's consumed by pride. And that makes humility an extremely important virtue for Manuel. He writes that, quote, It is clearly better not to do anything good for which you will be judged than to succeed something and consider yourself superior. He uses a sports metaphor, arguing that athletes who think they can compete and judge at the same time exalt themselves by placing the crown of victory on their own heads and with their own hands. A sharp critique for athletes who criticize referees or who think that they should be uh, you know, operating as if they were the media. But you could also see this point you know, just in general in life, that it, when you are participating in life, if you then try to simultaneously step outside of it and judge your own performance, you're mixing the roles in much the same way that an athlete who tries to be the media personality or tries to be the referee is mixing the roles. An emperor who exalts himself will be hated by his subjects and suffer rebellion, even if he's done lots of good things. And so this is ultimately why humility is so important politically. If an emperor gets haughty and full of himself, even if he's done many, many good things, people will still rebel because that arrogance will be so hateful to them. Now, I have a few thoughts about this that I want to give, uh, and then I'll turn it over to Alex and see what he's been thinking about. You know, first is you know, equality among souls tends to give rise to notions of personal responsibility. If all souls are equal because they're all, say, created by God, or they all come from God in the same way, then variations in character can rather easily be blamed on individuals for failing to appropriately develop themselves. And it's for this reason that a lot of Christian thinkers who are committed to the equality of souls, but want to resist judging other people, sometimes have a difficult time striking a balance between responsibility and forgiveness. And forgiveness is so important for these thinkers because they want to have responsibility without judgment. 
it also kind of suggests, uh, you know, difficulty combining responsibility with humility. If we are responsible, this tends to suggest taking pride in the things we do well. I mean, if we did them, if we're responsible for what we do, then if we do well, then, you know, it might seem to make sense to feel good about yourself or to think that you're good at what you're doing, right? But if all good things come from God, as Manuel says, then how could we be responsible at all? If all good things come from God, but all bad things come from us, that seems to be a little bit intention. Now, I'm not saying that there is no way of resolving this tension, but it's always a difficult thing to do, to emphasize at the same time uh, you know, forgiveness and humility, but also responsibility. Responsibility tends to diminish forgiveness and humility and to lead to judgment and pride. And so Christian ethicists who want responsibility alongside forgiveness and humility often have to spend a lot of time talking about forgiveness and humility because of how much responsibility otherwise would seem to suggest pride and judgment. <laughs> and I think that tension in Christian ethics uh, is difficult to manage. One can say you know, these things should be combined, but in practice, it's very difficult to manage. And so oftentimes we will see Christian ethicists on the basis of responsibility engaging in pride and in judgment. And this is why you will get so many uh, attempts to diminish pride, diminish judgment with exhortations to forgive, exhortations to be humble. Uh, lastly, I, I think there's a strong tendency for political theorists to focus more on the agency of the individual, precisely when that agency is heavily circumscribed by chance or by risk. It's because Manuel too relies so heavily on fate himself, I think, that he wishes to emphasize the emperor's capacity to be responsible and to be virtuous and to change things by his own efforts, right? Of course, if not for the death of Andronicos IV in 1385, Manuel would never have inherited because of the deal that his father made with Andronicos. And if not for the invasion of Timur in 1400, very likely Manuel would have been the last Byzantine emperor. Despite all of Manuel's attempts to use his virtue to obtain the sympathy of the Western kings, they never really helped him very much. Those displays of virtue going to the European capitals and being a really well-liked, well-received guy, none of that really got him any military aid. I will say this, though. Virtue may have helped Manuel to limit the rebellions after he became sole emperor. Manuel II's father, John V, was constantly tied up in civil wars from the very beginning of his reign. John V inherited as an eight-year-old boy in 1341, he immediately faced this horrible, brutal civil war between the supporters of his regent, John VI, and his mother. And that civil war saw the Byzantine Empire weakened enormously, really beyond the possibility of recovery. Further civil war in the 1370s saw even more territory slip away. So I will say that Manuel II was, to his credit, able to avoid that kind of conflict. But by the time Manuel II was in position to prevent that kind of conflict, it was too late for the empire to recover. You know, Timur and you know, conflict within the Ottoman Empire and distractions in other parts of the Balkans bought the Byzantines a lot of time, a lot of time. But there was never very much they could do with it. The Byzantine Empire lasted 
four hundred years after Manuel was born, a full another hundred years. But during all of that time, the best they could really do was tread water because they were already weakened to a point where no matter what virtues they had, they really were not in a physical position to recover. Of course, Manuel too could not have known that. Still in Constantinople, still the emperor, still imagining that maybe the Westerners might show up and they might help. That maybe the Ottomans might collapse. Maybe the Persians would get rid of them. Waiting for somebody from the East or the West to show up. But that's waiting for fate to intervene. And I think that is fundamentally the, the tension in all of this, is that this is a guy who had to spend, by necessity, a lot of his political career hoping and praying for fate to intervene on his behalf. So that's where I'll leave it for now. Alex, what did you think? Was it fated that the Ottomans would take over then? And that, well, he says that their military strength is not to do with their virtue. But at the same time, he says that they're a lot stronger in enduring hardship than the Romans. So, Yeah, and that's another kind of interesting tension. There is a tendency to praise the hardiness of, of steppe peoples. And that has a, a long, long tradition. You know, not just steppe peoples, but the kind of northern barbarian was always regarded by the Romans as physically really tough and hardy because of the more difficult climate and way of life that they've been subjected to. The Romans say this about the Germans and the Britons and, and all these northern peoples, that they're very tough, tough, physical, tough people, right? So there's, I think, a certain inheritance of that in the Greek tradition. At the same time, it seems to contradict this point that virtue is ultimately the only secure and stable source of power. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a tension. And I see a lot of tensions in Byzantine writing between kind of ancient ideas that would seem to pull the argument in one direction, Christian ideas that would seem to pull the argument in another direction, and an attempt to reconcile them that might have satisfied an audience that wanted to believe that they could be reconciled, but may not satisfy us. Do you think, for example, the notion of philanthropy in the emperor as being like a pastor of souls fulfilling God's plan like basically God's agent on earth kind of gets rid of that tension between uh, responsibility and humility, you said? Well, in some ways it kind of draws on very antique Roman notions of clemency, where the emperor is supposed to be forgiving and beneficial and to give things and benefit as a way of uh, endearing himself to different parts of the population. At the same time, there's this need to make this point about the emperor's relationship to God, which comes out of the later imperial ideology. And so there's a kind of attempt there to combine those different strands together. And one of the things that I do think sticks out about the Byzantines is this kind of syncretic tendency to try to put ancient and medieval things together very straightforwardly. Uh, there's more of a gulf in the West, in just in part because so much of the Roman inheritance was lost in the West, or, or only certain parts of it were preserved, or certain parts of it were translated back into Latin at certain points. Whereas with the Byzantines, thinking about all of these things together is, uh, goes without saying, is just kind of their instinct as they read all of these Greek philosophers in the Greek. 
maybe just adding unnecessary detail, but I saw in the funeral oration on Theodore, his brother, like three ta- traits of God, and they seem to match the three functions of the emperor in terms of law giving. So there's like a start, a middle, and an end. God leads and creates, then he cares with benefit, then he destroys the sinners. The emperor makes the law, he upholds the law, and he punishes the lawbreaker. It's like very, I don't know, very theoretically tight. Yeah, yeah. The emperor answers to God for Manuel. So because the emperor answers to God, it is very much the emperor's role to serve God by doing God's work on earth. That's not to say, however, that the emperor should imagine that he is God or has the qualities of God, because that would be the pride and the hubris that is to be avoided. If the emperor is giving philanthropy, I'm just thinking in a modern way, it's a bit uh, humiliating because you're supposed to be doing self-help, but maybe they have an equivalent with the Pope who also answers to God and is also like caring for your soul above, an, above your understanding as like a normal Catholic. Well, in the Middle Ages, there's much more emphasis on charity and on giving. And those who are powerful ought to give. And some of that has its roots in, in Christian thinking. Some of it, I do think, has its roots in Roman antique Roman notions of clemency. We did a long time ago on this show, we did an episode about Roman thought where we talked about clemency and Seneca a very long time ago. Um, you know, but Seneca advising the Emperor Nero to be very giving and generous and open-handed with his clemency. And I think that that is about creating this tie of legitimacy where the population that receives is more likely to support the emperor because the emperor is treating them in this way. Uh, And this way of behaving is not just virtue signaling, it's also concretely benefiting. And so, you know, that's not to say that the people who are being benefited are encouraged to just be completely dependent on the emperor for everything. You could find political theorists who make the argument that kings and emperors should try to make their subjects dependent on them. (laughs) You could find that. But that's not the argument here. The argument is that by giving these things, you make these people less likely to rebel. The difficult thing is that so much of Byzantine political theory is based around the emperor has to act appropriately. And there are so many different senses in which the emperor has to act appropriately. It's easy for someone, especially a member of the imperial family who's motivated to find an excuse to rebel, to rationalize framing the emperor as not having acted appropriately. The emperor is so dependent by this period on so many different criteria of behavior that it's very, very easy to come up with a rationale for rebellion. I mean, even if the emperor does good works, benefits everybody, but is a little bit too haughty, you've got a rationale for rebellion. An arrogant emperor is, you know, that's enough. But when Manuel talks about uh, collaborators with Turks, so, you know, conspiracies, he says it's not the main, or he says it's low-ranking officials, so that's not the commoners and that's not the main nobles. It's like a, a small band of people who... Let's be probably wouldn't be able to give reasons like you said, for example, oh, this emperor is arrogant or this guy, yeah, he's, he's not giving us enough clemency or it would have been different. Yeah. This is where we, we come to the evil people, right? So if the emperor is behaving, you're still going to have these knaves who are interested in money and gain and slaves, right? And those people will do deals with Turks if they think that they can get what they are looking for by doing those kinds of deals, right? 
They'll do deals with usurpers. They'll do deals with rebels. They'll do deals with anybody because they're just trying to get ahead. And they look at people in terms of what can I get out of you? There's a big emphasis in the discussion of knaves on how knaves will just switch sides if they think they can get something from somebody else. As soon as they see somebody who's offering them something, they go to that person. They're, they're not loyal at all because they only view people instrumentally. In many ways, you could view that as a kind of critique of the general attitude that prevails under capitalism of you know, if you're your, if your employee isn't giving you what you're looking for, you fire them. If your boss isn't giving you what you're looking for, you move on to another company. Uh, there's no real emphasis on loyalty because it's taken for granted by the knave that the goal is just to accumulate money. And also maybe the states of Manuel's time. For example, Turkey being at one point, I think, friends with Egypt and then fighting against them. Byzantines being friends and fighting against Venetians and, and, and Turks as well being their vassal and then fighting against them. Not really any permanent loyalties or even within Christendom, any sense of respect for like, you know, long-term allies. So dog eat dog. Yes. Although I think that Emmanuel kind of thought that maybe he could get these Western Christians to help, but especially the emperor of, uh, excuse me, not the emperor, the king of Hungary, Sigismund, who he goes to early in his reign and then again late in his reign. The Hungarians, they show up a couple of times uh, for, for the Byzantines. But they never accomplish anything when they do show up. The Ottomans usually manhandle them pretty badly. Also, I think a lot of the, the low-ranking officials who would have been doing insurgency, uh, in, he seems to almost praise like the pursuit of wealth elsewhere. Like he says, during times of peace, people enrich the city. And it's obviously people pursuing commerce doing that. I don't know how else they could do that. So... Yeah, maybe it's just moderation. He just doesn't want to say wealth pursuing is bad outright, even though there's that tendency in the ancient world to be very, yeah, disliking of it. Well, you know, in Plato's dialogues, you can have people who pursue money, but they have to be ruled. They can't be doing the ruling, right? If you aren't able to have moderation in your own soul, then you need the emperor to impose moderation through the law. So these people who have the potential for knavishness, uh, they have to be managed by the law. And if they're not managed by the law, then you have to worry about them getting in bed with all sorts of other people who may do you all kinds of harm. But a lot of people who maybe manage the law in the public sphere wouldn't have necessarily been that wealthy because he talks about uh, rhetoricians or orators, good speakers, as basically they should be in a letter. He says that you should be content with the glory that comes from that and not pursue wealth. Because if you were a wealthy person who didn't have training in rhetoric, then, you know, you, would, you wouldn't choose the right time or the topic. You wouldn't uplift people and it would be harmful. So basically, if you're wealthy and you haven't got rhetoric training, you should stay out of maybe diplomacy or public politics. So... There must have been a lot of people sitting around who weren't able to participate, you know? No, you got to know your role. You know, this is Byzantine political theory 101. People have to stay in their lanes and know their roles, right? Uh, just that's that goes back to Plato and goes back to, you know, all the way in the beginning, the principle of specialization and respecting what you're good at and not trying to put together things that ought not to be put together. You know, if you are someone who's good at rhetoric and you just use that to pursue money, that will only make you cause trouble for everybody. 
it's better to keep those people separate. You know, Montesquieu talks about this is way later and in, in France, but Montesquieu talks about the importance of kind of keeping the money pursuers and the honor lovers in separate lanes. Because if honor and money come together, that's a much bigger problem. Then you have people with money who are trying to do politics and you have people who are honor pursuers who are in competitions over money and who are being dragged into the, the venal money grubbing game. So honor is tainted if it becomes associated with money and money becomes too powerful if it becomes associated with honor. So if you kind of keep these things apart, it protects everybody on all sides. But then I and in particular, it protects the emperor from those kinds of people. Wasn't the big wealth, though, the people who would have won honor in fighting wars? So there was always a bit of a... So not honor in, in peace, but honor in wartime that the wealthy would have sought. So there was that mixing. Well, by this point, the wars are not tending to go particularly well for the Byzantines. Uh, they're was a little bit of fighting in Moria in the Peloponnese where the Byzantines under Manuel were able to expand a little bit and gain a little bit of territory. But for the most part, military exploits were not something that went particularly well most of the time and uh, were increasingly led by emperors or led by members of the imperial family, in part because of the risk of rebellion if anybody else is leading. So by this period, I don't think there was a ton of room for lower-ranking people to make their names through military exploits. Um, in earlier periods of Roman and Byzantine history, of course, there was. But by this point, most of the military campaigns will be led by either the emperor or the emperor's sons. So a lot of the public offices would have been quite uh, maybe knavish or drone-classy kind of easygoing, or you don't have to, yeah. Well, certainly from the emperor's point of view, that's a concern because from the emperor's point of view, anybody who's not family could be trouble, and even the family can be trouble because you have such a high rate of rebellion. Manuel makes a big point out of putting the kind of despotates, these kind of exclaves, uh, in the hands of his sons whenever he can. He makes a point to give Moria to one of his sons. He gives Thessalonica to another one of his sons. He is interested in consolidating control by sending sons to personate him in the different parts of this maritime empire. Do, they, do, do all the people in, in offices have to be all male, though? Because his mother was like his main teacher. She intervened on his behalf when he was prisoner. She was... Biggest in yeah, the, yeah, you do occasionally have uh, Byzantine women getting more involved in politics. I mentioned earlier that when John V ascended the throne at age eight, his mother was the leader of one of the sides in the Civil War. You do occasionally have women who are very close to the emperors playing significant roles. Emperors' wives sometimes play significant roles. Emperors' mothers sometimes play significant roles. You would not have large numbers of women throughout the whole military uh, and civil service infrastructure, but you could occasionally have women in the imperial family who could be big players. But they're always only big players as long as they're inside the family. And if they're not, then it breaks the family dynamic, which is harmful because it destroys the ideology or because you literally just couldn't fight 
was with women in those days? I mean, is it more of, do you think it's more of a, like a, an ideology reason or like an actual just physical, I don't know. Well, it's surely a little bit of both. Um, you, you have a tendency for women to not get trained in fighting in part because their you know, potential for you know, violence with pokey sticks is, is not as high. But then also, you know, because you're not training them, they tend to be less trained. And so that leads you to view them as less capable. Uh, if you were training them, they'd be more capable than you might think. But you don't train them because they aren't as capable as, you know, a big, giant, burly man. Of poking somebody with a stick. Yeah, I think that in general is a you know, quite common issue in antique societies that you start with, well, uh, a woman is not able to poke with a stick as effectively as a man. And then from there, you make a set of further assumptions. Do you think uh, there was too much luxury in the palace? Because I know Theo was talking a lot about not being able to have any free time for leisure or being stuck in instant gratification or all classes basically demanding to meet, you know, there. Yeah. Petitions. One of the things that's difficult when you're the, you're the emperor, you're king in a medieval state is that you are so busy all the time. You know, if you're in a Republic where there's a rotation of offices, you know, like in Athens, for instance, sometimes you're in office and sometimes you're not. And when you're not in office, you can do different things from when you are in office. But if you're someone like Manuel, you have to be constantly, constantly in office and everything you do is always a political act at every stage of life. So you don't get these contemplative periods. And oftentimes when you're dealing with your subjects, you're dealing with them in settings that involve the consumption of luxuries and involve pleasures. So you can't completely abstain from those things or avoid them because you have to attend these events and you have to interact with these members of high society. Uh, and if you were to avoid it, if you were to just wall yourself up and go, I'm, you know, I may be an emperor, but I am first and foremost a, a believer in God, and you refuse to engage in any of those things, uh, eventually that would be a political problem in part because you would per be perceived to be haughty and prideful and think that you're better than everybody else. <laughs> Whether you thought that or didn't, that's how you'd come off. And so that would not be a particularly good look for an emperor. So, for that reason, emperors have to get involved in these things, and that makes moderation a very important virtue for an emperor to have. Emperors are going to be at these parties, so they have to make sure that they don't drink too much. They have to make sure that they don't eat too much. And they have to make sure that they keep their wits about them, because who knows what they might learn if they pay attention. But, of course, those kinds of events can be... Very tempting, especially for a stressed out emperor who's just been doing this all the time, all his life, every day, never gets a break, never gets to do anything else. That can be very hard. And for that reason, a lot of emperors, I, I think, lionize monks and monasteries and the quiet life because it's something that they can never have or which they would only have in retirement or, you know, in a period of ill health. Manuel, after his stroke, he spends a little bit of time as a monk going on by the name Matthew. Do you think a similar thing could happen on war campaigns? He said he, when he had to go abroad, he fighting, he had more leisure time, spending his books, and he was able to think more clearly than inside the palace. Maybe the palace. Well, all that traveling, all that traveling that you do, and and it's not with an army, right? If you're going to Italy, you're going to France, you're going to England, you're spending a lot of time on boats and moving around, and 
yeah, every now and then you're going to meet somebody because you're going to stop somewhere and you're going to see some people, but it's not as constant as when you're in the palace where everybody is constantly interested in you and wanting your attention because of what you can do for them. Uh, when you're abroad, yeah, people might think it's interesting to meet the Byzantine emperor, but it's not like you're going to solve anybody in France's problems by you know, adjudicating a dispute. And you're not going to really solve problems by being, I don't know, that, that um, present all over the land, as opposed to just being there in the capital. So people come, come to you, but you never go to them. So it's like you rely on them to self-govern until a problem comes and then a few people come all the way from their distant province to you, but you never go out to them. Some emperors do move around. Um, you know, for instance, there's always this, this goes way back, but Emperor Hadrian was famous for always being on the move. He would constantly move the imperial court all over the place because he wanted to see the whole empire. And as he moved around, of course, he would be able to get different news in different places and more detailed news about specific situations when he was nearby. And some imperial courts work that way. The Persians in particular often have a kind of mobile imperial court in, in Persian imperial history. There are multiple capitals and different places that the court goes at different times of the year so that it's closer to different areas that tend to be trouble spots during those periods. So you can do that. You can move around. You also can just sit there at, at your court in your capital and force everybody to come to you. And when that happens, there tends to be more neglect of the regions. For instance, one of the big critiques of Louis XIV, the Sun King, is that he tended to just kind of hide out in Paris and dragged everybody into Paris in to see him. And so more and more people were spending more and more of their time in Paris and very little time was spent out in the regions listening to people and finding out what was really going on. So you do have those issues. Some uh, political theorists will say, well, you can compensate for being stuck in a capital by having large numbers of spies and informants. And maybe you can, if you can trust them. There's, there's that emphasis on the agency, so the free will of individuals. But I thought if you have virtue, then you basically sorted out free will because your free will will always or necessarily end up in goodness. So it's like conquering yeah. free will, getting rid of it almost. I guess the question then is, do you choose to be virtuous? Is virtue something that you voluntarily acquire? Or is virtue something that kind of happens to you? Do you get kind of lucky? And as fate would have it, you end up a virtuous person because of the circumstances that you're put in and the opportunities that you have to learn things. So when we talk about ignorance, right? If ignorance is a cause of evil... Well, some people end up in situations where they learn stuff and some people don't. And Manuel makes a distinction between the things that, you know, you could just realistically not end up learning, which are, you know, that's real ignorance. And then the things that everybody's supposed to know insofar as everybody's created by God and therefore has a certain kind of a priori knowledge of what's good that they should be able to access. And therefore, if they're ignorant about those matters, it's meant to be their fault. I'm not sure that works. I, I I really don't think it does. Well, but don't, don't you also say that people shouldn't, well, they didn't say, maybe we shouldn't blame so much people for, you know, immoral actions as an ideal. So that implies, like he said, there's some innate concept or spark of goodness. 
so that they're split when they're doing evil. Um, a bit, and there's like progress, like liberals in a way, like things are always progressing. Even the evil person wants to be around better evil people. They want to improve in some way. So they have a concept of good. Yeah. The, the issue is that in suggesting that the evil person is split, then the evil person is choosing to do evil, even though they know on some level what's good, even if they've hidden it from themselves. And, but you're not supposed to judge that person for having done that. <laughs> And that's the tension that you end up with in a lot of Christian ethics, this idea that, okay, well, it's their, you know, they're responsible. They chose it because God, you know, they're created by God. And so they know God's love and God's goodness. And so far as they're, they're emanating from God. So when they are evil, it's, it's got to be voluntary on some level, even if it's mixed voluntary, it has to end up voluntary. They have to be responsible. But then if people who are evil are responsible for their being evil, well, then there are lots of behaviors and actions and, and that seem clearly evil. And you're not to judge people for doing those things, even though uh, by this account, if somebody's doing evil, if somebody's evil, it's because they voluntarily picked it. You're supposed to nonetheless reserve judgment. Now, why do you reserve judgment? Well, it's because you're humble and you know that it's only for God to judge. So you end up needing humility to get non-judgment. And this is why so much emphasis has to be placed on humility. So much. The whole schema rides on that. Is it also because these metaphysical questions, you, if you come down on one answer too hard, then you miss the point maybe? So for example, with humility, it should be like Christ is a king because he lowers himself. It's like paradox. Or you love all beings because you become dispassionate, so you don't love after just you know one thing or cause. All these like mysteries in the Bible, which maybe you could say are just also Platonic dialectics, but things with like basically questions that don't have an answer. So if you come down too harshly on one side, you're just going to look stupid. Now, that's that's too nuanced. To too nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the trouble is that not everything is is just two poles with something in the middle, right? <laughs> And this is where moderation is a, a cool idea, but you start to kind of reach the edge of it when you get into situations where you're not just dealing with two poles, right? So in the case of, we talk about you know, responsibility and judgment and forgiveness. Well, you end up needing humility, which is this third thing, right? So the humility pride access, uh, access becomes... Uh, it starts to affect this responsibility forgiveness axis. So you end up needing you know, to deal with responsibility without judgment. You need forgiveness uh, and you need humility to reserve judgment. So that means that you can't have pride. And so you get in this kind of chain here where the problem occurs here, so you kick it there. The problem occurs there, so you kick it further over. You end up in a situation where now you're kind of fetishizing humility, and you're taking humility as the thing that you've got to really go all the way in on. I don't mean that to be a defense of pride, but I do think that this ethical scheme ends up leaning very, very heavily on humility because... It has it, this invocation of responsibility, and it's because it leans too much on responsibility that it then has to lean so heavily on humility. 
to the point where those things pull in tension. You then have responsibility leading people away from humility, even though humility is the thing that you need to have an ethical schema based around responsibility that doesn't just produce judgment. Wait, how does responsibility lead your way? If you, if you say that um, no matter what happens outside, it's all my fault, that's quite a humble thing to do, isn't it? Well, if you say that, it, it doesn't just go for you, it goes for everybody. So if somebody is behaving badly and they're committing all kinds of sins, well, if you're saying that's a voluntary act on their part for which they're responsible, that seems to me to be judgment. If just in saying that, that's judgment, right? So to say that the other is responsible is to judge. So if we are then going to say, well, no, you shouldn't judge because you've got to be humble because only God can judge, then you are claiming responsibility without accepting the implication of judgment. And the only way you can do that is with humility. So because you've emphasized responsibility too much, you then have to place an enormous amount of weight on humility. But because responsibility leads away from humility, you will never get enough humility to deal with the consequences of this emphasis on responsibility. I think that's the problem. Am I making sense? I think that's the issue. I think it's that... Let me try to, to put it all in one go. If you emphasize responsibility, if the other is responsible for evil, that would seem to be judging the other. The only way you could avoid judging the other would be to humble yourself and go, though it seems to me that the other is responsible for the evil. I won't judge the other because it's only God's role to judge and I am but an ordinary human being, right? So then you are constantly having to withhold judgment about things that the ethical scheme seems to put you in position to judge. And that means you're constantly needing humility. And the only way that you could stop needing humility would be to stop imputing responsibility onto everybody all the time. If you're saying everybody's responsible for everything that they're doing all the time, then you have to constantly, constantly say they're responsible, but I'm not judging them. They're responsible, but I'm going to be humble and I'm not going to judge them. So you're, you're constantly operating from this scarcity of humility, this lack of humility. And indeed, this is the way Manuel writes about humility. He treats it as this kind of thing that is always in short supply, thing that we always need more of, thing that it's almost dangerous to talk too much about because to talk about humility is to suggest that you understand it, which, of course, I don't understand it, but I'm writing about it. <laughs> We're talking. So you're always, you're always in short supply of humility in Christian ethics because you need it to have the responsibility without the judgment. And you never end up with enough humility to have the responsibility without the judgment. So Christian ethics is always becoming judgment because it is always short of humility. Because it needs an infinite supply of humility to deal with the degree to which it emphasizes responsibility. Could it be due to do with um, the amount, just the cost of enjoying things, of luxury in the ancient world being much higher than it is today? Like you would willingly turn away from luxury today, maybe if you have some bad experiences. But in the ancient world, if you commit too much to it, the amount of weakness or the danger it will bring to you, or just like the, the sheer unluckiness, the fact that the luxury isn't as stable as it is today, the lack of control. 
means that, oh, okay, it's just fortune. Like, I didn't choose to give up luxury. It's just the way things are. I can very easily master myself. It doesn't have to be this very serious, effortful thing that it seems to be today to go out of luxury. Yeah, that's an interesting point. In antiquity, the set of places where you can easily get access to luxuries are more limited. And it's more likely that uh, a, a place that you're in that has access to luxury might suddenly lose that access. Say you're in Constantinople and there's a blockade and as a result, you can't get certain kinds of spices that you've grown accustomed to, right? All of a sudden, the same place is no longer as luxurious as it was. Secondly, you may have to leave Constantinople from time to time to go on military campaign, to deal with problems in other places. And in those other places, you won't be able to have the luxuries that you have in Constantinople because only Constantinople has a lot of those things. So if you are someone who's dependent on luxuries, you may not go to these other places when you should because you won't want to go to them because they won't be as luxurious. You know, if you think about the Western tourist, there's still a lot of, I think, truth in this now that a lot of Westerners don't want to go to countries where they won't be comfortable. You know, there's a kind of, uh, you know, if they do go, they, they have to go to a resort that is you know, protected and kind of an enclave hidden away from the rest of the country so that they can still have the luxuries that they would have ordinarily at home. So a Westerner will go, oh, I want to go to a developing country, but I want to live, you know, while I'm there at a resort. I want to be at a resort or a nice hotel. I don't really want to experience the lack of luxury, which is one of the characteristic features of living as an ordinary person in those societies. You know, the Westerner, if they can't do that, will just not go or will just not visit. Uh, oftentimes, using some kind of pretext like, well, I wouldn't feel safe there. Well, you wouldn't feel comfortable because you're accustomed to luxuries that you wouldn't have. One of those might be, you know, safety from getting mugged. <laughs> Kidnapped even. So there is real fear. Yeah. Yeah. I, there is real fear. But uh, I do think sometimes people will overblow the safety aspect in part because of a discomfort you know, to do with, you know, you get accustomed to certain things. And a lot of the stuff that is a luxury from, you know, the point of view of an ancient person that we have, are, it, we treat as very basic and we think of as very ordinary or run-of-the-mill. And also, it's entirely possible that we may have disruptions to trade uh, that could cause us to lose access to certain luxuries or power outages or power cuts. These things do still sometimes happen. We talk about Ukrainians who, during the war, are without heating and are very, very cold and who are in a position where they have to go to places to get warmed up. Uh, if we were to have some kind of conflict, say, with China that could disrupt trade in the Pacific Ocean, all of a sudden, a lot of things that we take for granted, we might not have easy access to. You know, during COVID, there are lots of different products that we got in short supply of. It wasn't the case that you went to the supermarket and there was no food, but it was often the case that you went to the supermarket and certain foods that you may have been accustomed to were not there. And if you were someone who only liked to eat those foods and didn't like to eat the ordinary cheap food, well, then you might find that a very uncomfortable period. I think uh, there's a certain amount of that. Oftentimes, small businesses, they got used to a kind of easy supply of cheap labor. And when wages went up and more people were staying home and, and not working during the pandemic, uh, those small business owners, they got very uncomfortable trying to deal with workers who were less available or who wanted higher wages. They were accustomed to a luxury that they 
struggled to do without when all of a sudden it disappeared. I do think we still see these dynamics, but I think you're right that in general, it was much more obvious to people in antiquity or in the Middle Ages that these things were transient and that you could quickly lose luxuries all of a sudden for reasons outside of your control. And that's why the life that's about pleasure is tied so much to the life that is dependent upon fate in Manuel's corpus. Whereas the virtuous person who doesn't have a lot of needs will not be so miserable in these different situations. And then they depend on the fate of their mind developing because the outside, the inside is developing because the outside's horrible. Yeah. Another thing that makes this period kind of different is the biggest, baddest army at the time that this is written is the army of Timur, which is an army of deeply austere Turco-Mongolian horseback riding guys. It's a set of people who are not very comfortable. And once they settle, if they settle down in a city and they start to get more comfortable, they tend to lose some of their martial edge. So in these kinds of societies, being comfortable and being good at fighting and winning wars tend to pull away from each other. Whereas in modernity, being really rich and technologically advanced tends to help you fight wars, even if your soldiers are less physically fit and lazier. The American who pulls a trigger from behind a computer screen is much more likely to win over, you know, some very tough guys who have lived their whole lives, you know, in the desert, you know, in a very hardy environment. You know, those guys will lose to some, you know, really slovenly American guy with a trigger, you know, office somewhere piloting a drone. Uh, so some of the rules of thumb that guided people in this period about you know, what makes for success don't apply as straightforwardly now. Well, I think we've come to a natural stopping point and we're at about an hour and 10. That's good. It's good to not go on for too long. So we'll wrap up here. Thank you guys so much for listening. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.